Ann and I lived in Turkey, we came face to face with powers and authorities that we really had no experience or ability to fight against. And I learned um, a way uh, to, to call on the Lord to fight for me. Uh, if you recall, in the book of uh, Jude, there's a scene where an archangel is arguing with Satan about Moses' body, and rather than that archangel rebuking Satan, uh, the archangel calls on God to rebuke Satan, which tells me that I don't have any, I personally, Tom Harrison, I have no authority over Satan whatsoever. However, I serve a God who does. Uh, it's almost like if I'm a little kid in a neighborhood and I'm getting picked on by the bully. If I bow up on the bully, I'm probably going to get my uh, get beat down, but I can run to my daddy. And so, and one of the ways that we can run to our daddy is in the book of Psalms, we have what are called imprecatory Psalms. They're the Psalms in the, that we read and we don't really know why they're even in the Bible sometimes because they're, they're like, hey, God, come up against my enemies, beat them up, smash them up against the rock, break their neck. And we read those and we're like, oh, that's, you know, that's not very comfortable to read. But if you realize that as Christians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in high places, then those imprecatory psalms can be extremely powerful tools for us to call on our daddy to come and fight for us. So I want to do that now. If you want to read along with me, I want to pray... Uh, from Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrong. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ears so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O oh God, break the teeth in their mouth. Tear out the fangs of the young lion, O oh Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. Let the stillborn child who never sees the sun Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. God, we pray that in this house this morning that you rise up and fight our enemies. Break his jaw. Shut his mouth where he's whispering into people's ears lies. And God, then we will rejoice when we see your vengeance. You will bathe your feet in the blood of the wicked God, we will cry out, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. God, we pray that you rise up and fight. We pray that you rebuke the enemy from this house this morning. Lord, we pray that you fill this house with your spirit because we desperately need a touch from you. Lord, these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. At first blush, the story that was read seems a little strange. It's not the sort of story that you really hear a whole lot preached about. 
Let me back up in case you weren't here last week and tell you a little bit about what happened. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, we read that the, the children of Israel went up against the Philistines and 4,000 soldiers were killed in the battle. And so somebody had the bright idea, hey, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it and take it into battle with us. Let's use God like he's a rabbit's foot, a good luck charm. Like he's a pinata. If we keep whopping him, sooner or later some candy's going to come out. Is whopping or is whapping? Whapping's the word I'm looking for there. And so the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. You see, we see in that story that God is never going to be our means to an end. When we approach God, we come to God for God's sake. We don't approach God because of what He's going to give us that we want. And when Israel tried to do that, God would rather let His own people be defeated than believe that they owned Him. And in your own life, God is much more concerned about your Christ-likeness than He is with your happiness. And so, the Ark of the Covenant was taken. The children of Israel experienced a great slaughter, as the text says. The two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, die. The word gets back to uh, Shiloh. Eli hears that his sons die. The Ark of the Covenant is taken. He falls backwards, breaks his neck, and he dies. And then Phinehas' wife... is. Here's the shocking, horrible news. The shock of that sends her into labor. She was pregnant. She has a baby, and she names that baby Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And then she died. It's not a happy story. So in the minds of probably the most holy, godly man in Israel, they would have said, we failed. We have failed utterly. What is God to do? Which brings us to where we are today. So the Philistines, no doubt, think we've beaten the children of Israel, so our God is more powerful than theirs. And so they take the Ark of the the Covenant like a battle trophy, take it into the temple of their God, set it up. It's a way to show that their God, Dagon, was more powerful than Yahweh. So we know a little bit about Dagon because he was a God that's been worshipped throughout human history. He was originally a Mesopotamian God of the Assyrians, Babylonians. He was, uh, the the Dag is uh, uh, early Semitic language for corn. So he was a fertility God. He was a God that was uh, a God of war. 
I read a, a, an archaeologist that felt like that Dagon eventually, as it moved across cultures, became Zeus. Um, he was the god of grain. He was a symbol of fertility. He was a god of fish and fishing. He was uh, uh, the head of the pantheon of the Philistines. In a city called Elba, uh, where there have been some archaeological digs, we they have found the heads of Dagon uh, over um, 200 different gates. And they've read, written on those gates, uh, it was said of Dagon at Elba that he's the Lord of the gods. He's the Lord of the land. In fact, over a quarter of Elba cities, Elba was a, a, a small kingdom, over a quarter of their cities were named after Dagon. Now that would get confusing. Uh, but apparently over a quarter of their cities, if you said, hey, we're... You, I'll meet you in Dagon. Well, you're talking about Dagon over there by the Jacks. We're talking about Dagon that's got the... So that had to be confusing. But nonetheless, that's what they found. Um, they've also found that he was called the Dew of the Land and the Lord of Canaan. In fact, the, on Hammurabi's code, King Hammurabi wrote this, that he, of his own title that he was the subduer of the settlements along the Euphrates, with the help of Dagon, his creator. That's the opening line to the Code of Hammurabi. So Dagon is a powerful god in their minds. And so here is this little chest, this little ark, that sat at the foot of, in the mighty temple of Dagon. And they all go to bed, thinking, ha ha, we've shown them. And they wake up the next morning, and we read... When the people of Ashad rode early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. You've got to imagine that the writer here of Samuel had a big grin on his face as he wrote that. They took their God and set him back up. If you've got to hook your own God up, you, maybe you're shopping at the wrong God store. If your God needs any help from you, then that shows something about your God. But they set him back up. So the next day, when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold, and only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold to Dagon and Ashad to this day. Now imagine this. They set their God up. They probably think maybe there was an earthquake. Maybe somebody bumped him wrong. Maybe something crazy went on. They get up the next day and not only is Dagon laying on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant, but his head symbolizing his ability to think and figure things out sitting on the threshold, and his hands symbolizing his power. Remember it was said of God, his hand is not shortened, that he cannot save. Well, Dagon's hands weren't just shortened, they were cut off, and they were on the threshold. And then the writer here adds that it was embarrassing 10, 20, 30, 100 years later that this happened. Because to this day, they have to step over the threshold because that's where Dagon's head was. So it was something that these people knew about for years and years afterwards, that their God had bowed down before Yahweh. 
So they decide this ain't working, and they, they try to move on. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashad, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashad and its territory. All right, we're going to try this, Sam, without me getting in trouble. Okay, so the word here that the ESV chose to translate as tumors. I have to be a little indelicate, so please cut me some slack. I didn't write for Samuel. It's not on me. But the word here is hemorrhoids. Jerome's Latin Vulgate renders verse 6 this way. He smote them in the more secret parts of their posteriors. I really wish the ESV had gone with that because I like the way that that's put. Um, So wherever the ark of of God is here... All the men get hemorrhoids, apparently so bad that some of them die. And they say that that particular curse means that the hand of God is hard against them. And any of you who have suffered from that particular calamity would probably agree. Okay, so we got past that. I don't think I, I messed up. I, was, I did okay. Okay, we've spent more time than you would believe talking about how to say hemorrhoids from the pulpit. And Mark uh, Minton wasn't helpful at all with some of his suggestions. So when the, Now listen, when the men of Ashad saw how things were, they said, the ark of the covenant of God in Israel must not remain with us. Get this thing out of here. For his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, let the ark of the God be brought around to Gath. So if you look, if all of this is happening in more or less what's the Sinai Peninsula now, and they, they're moving in a circular area, taking the ark from city to city. So they take it to this city called Gath, and when the ark is taken to Gath, um, guess what happens? They brought it around, and the hand of the Lord was against that city, causing a very great panic, and he afflicted the men of that city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. Both the young men and the old men get this, afflicted with this same thing. And they're not happy at all. So they sent the Ark of the God to Ekron. So all the men get the, the, the tumors. We'll stick with tumors since this is the way the ESV went with it. Um, so they get the tumors and they're like, get this thing out of here. And so it's moved to Ekron. It comes to Ekron. Surely they had heard what happened in the, uh, in the other city. Uh, I'm sorry, to Gath. They had heard what had happened in Ashad. And so they're like, uh, this isn't going to happen here. Bam, they all get hit tumors and then uh, they're like get this thing out of here right now they don't even trouble themselves to take it into a temple or do anything like that they just want it gone they just want it out of here so they decide to take it to Ekron because there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city the hand of God was very heavy there and the men who did not die that is just crazy that people were dying from this and so they go to send it to Gath Well, as the tumor box is coming into Gath, the people of Gath send people outside the gate to say, whoa, well, I don't know what you think you're doing, but you're not bringing that thing in here. And so the Philistines are all called together. They don't know what to do with it. And then the story ends with the summary that says the hand of God was heavy on 
the people of the Philistines. So what do we do with this text? Well, the first thing that I see here is a lesson about idols. The Hebrew word for an idol is actually no God. It's not a God. It's the antithesis of a God. It's a thing. In fact, in Isaiah 44, we read this really uh, uh, snarky, smart-alecky story about a guy who goes out and plants a tree. And the tree grows because God causes it to rain on the tree. God causes the sun to shine in the sky and causes that tree to grow. And the man doesn't grow the tree. God grows the tree. He cuts the tree down and then he takes a plumb line and he puts along the tree and he marks the tree trunk after he's cut it down. And then he starts carving on the tree. And then with the wood chips that he comes off, he builds a fire. And on that fire, he makes his lunch. And the guy works really hard, and he turns this into a figure, and then he sets that figure up, and he says, this is my God. And so the writer of Isaiah even goes so far as to say, the same tree gave him warmth in a fire, gave him the, the, the heat to cook his meal. It was of no value to him. And yet that same tree, he sits up and says, this is my God. How stupid is that, is what Isaiah is saying. I mean, even the people of the Philistines, surely they realized that if they had to go in there and set their God up, that God, Yahweh, was far more powerful than this God that needs their help. And we read that and we kind of chuckle. Because when we hear the word idol, we think in our mind something made out of wood and stone that you fall and worship. I know uh, I went to India, um, and I remember standing in a Buddhist temple in um, Bangalore and watching as people would come in before these great giant gods, and they would walk in. And and I remember there was a, a, a dad and his son, and the dad was teaching his son how to stand in front of the God and clap to get the God's attention and to write his prayers out on a piece of paper and fold that paper up and chew it up like a spitball and then throw it so it stuck to the God so the God would answer his prayers. And I even went, as weird as it sounds, in Bangalore, very near the hospital, is a Hindu temple to Jesus. You walk into this little temple and there's, there's pictures of scenes of Jesus' life. And there's behind a curtain with, or a wall with, with candles lit all in front of it. There's, there's the picture that we've seen in just about every Baptist church of the blonde, blue-haired guy standing there looking off. You know what picture I'm talking about. And they treat him just like he's another god. And people go in and they light candles and they leave food offerings and they pray to their Jesus God. Just another God. So when we hear the word idols, that's what we think of. We think of something like that. But we read something strange in the book of Colossians. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
You see, Paul lists out some sins here that he compares to idolatry as sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness. Remember when the children of Israel made their idol? Now let's think a little bit about that. I think I've mentioned it before. It's very strange that Abraham, uh, Moses rather, is up on the mountain. And the Bible says that you can hear the thunder. You can see the clouds covering the mountain. You can hear things. It's rolling. And as all of that is going on, the children of Israel take up gold and make themselves a golden calf to worship. Have you ever thought about how weird that is? That they could, they're sitting worshiping this golden calf and they could literally turn and look at the mountain that Yahweh has descended on, that he's giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. Now, why do you think they made their God into a calf? Certainly, a calf would represent wealth to them. Certainly, a calf would represent fertility. But so would a bull represent both of those things. Why a calf? I may have shared the story uh, when we were preaching through Exodus to this. I, I, we one time, we, had, uh, we used to have a farm in Coleman. We had cows. And we had an ice storm that came in, as is wanting to do in Alabama. And I had a, a heifer that was right up against the fence, and she gave birth to a calf, and she was on one side of the fence, and the calf was on the other. And as the calf started lulling for mama, and mama couldn't get to the calf because of the fence, she went bananas and started running up and down that fence and getting herself cut up, and she ended up crashing through the fence. And by the time she got through the fence, she was so amped up and you know, all cowed out that she ran off into the woods. Cows aren't the brightest bulbs in the bulb box. They're the cows. And so she ran off. And so now I've got this calf. Well, a calf can't really regulate its heat for the first 24, 48 hours. It only stays right up against mama. And we have this ice storm coming in. And so I go to Ann and I'm like, hey, um, would you say we bring a cow in the house? And, and she's like, I don't think so. And so I ended up getting a, uh, we, we had a refrigerator box or some kind of box that I pulled into the house, put hay in it, and we put it in the, this calf in the hall. I didn't put it in the kitchen. I originally wanted to put it in the kitchen, but I, 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 I love my wife, and so we put it in the hallway. And so we had this calf in a hallway. And uh, the next morning I got up and I, I went in and I picked the calf up and I went and put him in the, in the uh, he was a little bull calf, I put him in the back of the truck and we drove around and the calf took to riding around in the truck just like a dog. He's standing up in the back and sure enough here in a little bit mom comes running out of the woods and we reunite them and he eats and everything was happy. The only problem with that was when mom came up, by the way, I reached into the, the truck to get the little calf out and his little hoof popped me twice right in the face, right as I'm getting a hold of him, hit me square in the nose, black both of my eyes, and for like three weeks, I had everybody going, what happened to you? And so since it was a bull calf, I told people, well, I got to fight with a bull, and uh, it kind of messed me up a little bit. I didn't tell me it was. Notice, though, in that story what I could do with that calf. I could control him. I could pick that calf up. I could put that calf in my not my kitchen, but not, that's not the calf's fault. I could put that calf in that back hallway. I could put that calf in my truck. I could control him. We can't control God. And so the reason why the children of Israel is they look toward Mount Sinai and they hear the thunder and the very presence of God hovers on that mountain. They can't control that. 
And so idolatry is any time we run from the presence of God to create something for ourselves, something that our heart can yearn for, but something that we can control. And so Paul lists out pornography is primarily idolatry. The idol that you're worshiping is yourself. I want what I want. Worry is idolatry because you're saying one of two things. You're either saying God isn't on the throne. These circumstances are on the throne. Cancer is too big for God. And so I'm worried about that because I can't trust that God is bigger than cancer. Or I can't trust that God is bigger than my child going down the road late at night. Or whatever it is that's got you worried. It's putting something other than God on the throne of your life. The other side of worry could be, and this is where my tendency lies, is not putting the circumstances on the throne, but putting me on the throne. I'm trying to come up with a plan to fix it. I'm trying to come up with a way to, well, if I could do this, I can get this guy to do this, and then do this, and then I can figure it out. I'm the one on the throne. And so if you really think about it, almost all of our sins eventually falls down to idolatry and saying, God, you're not enough. I don't like the way you're doing it. I don't like the way my life is turning out. This isn't what I planned. And I want it my way. And trying to make your life about you and what you want or me trying to make it about me. As I prepared for this sermon and God beat me up on my own heart about this sermon, I could picture in my mind a throne and sitting on that throne is the big old letter I. I will. Now, if we go back to the story there in Ashad, one would think that once Yahweh had overcome their God and it was found face down that they would go well clearly we're worshiping the wrong God remember Rahab as she heard about how powerful Yahweh was against the gods of Egypt and the children of the spies of Israel came into her apartment she said your God is God From Rahab's descendants, we have a little baby named David. But not these Philistines. They weren't able to put that together. In fact, they did the opposite of that. They wanted to prop their own God back up. I was listening to um, Derek Thomas uh, preach on this same text. And he pointed out that when Lazarus was raised from the dead... Think about this. This is amazing to me. Here, there are all these Pharisees that are around, and they see, they literally, with their own eyes, see Jesus walk up, being told by Lazarus' sister when Jesus says, open the grave. She says, Lazarus stinks. Open the grave. They open the grave, and Jesus, and, and these Pharisees are watching this. Jesus looks at that grave and says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus.
Lazarus gets up out of that grave and walks, still bound with the clothes, so that Jesus has said, go loose him, go take those burial clothes off of him. You would think that those Pharisees would be going, oh, he is God. He is the Messiah. But no, they plot to kill Lazarus. And I want to point a finger and say, how stupid are those people? How dumb are they? Why can't they see? And then I look at my own heart and think how often God has proven to me that money is not God. And yet how quickly when I have a bill that I don't know how I'm going to pay, I think, there's no way you can handle this one, God. You may have the cattle on a thousand hills, but not that sixty-three ninety-five. I'm going to get my power cut off. No matter how many times God shows me that sickness is not God, but Yahweh is. And when somebody I love comes into the room and says that test came back positive, I tremble in the face of that sickness. Or when my heart is set to worry, I think to myself, but not, not that. You can't deal with that one, God. I got to figure this out. I got to sit down and figure out a plan. I take my idols and with a winch and a jack, I prop it right back up. And I wonder how many of you here, I don't know what's on your heart. I don't know what's going on. I don't know who here is struggling with uh, inability to have a child who might be struggling with cancer, who might be struggling with a a mom who's old and sick, who might be struggling with financial issues. And you know up here, yeah, God can deal with that, but He probably won't. Don't worship at the foot of I. Fall down at the throne of Yahweh and say, whether you choose to solve this or not, whether you choose for you to heal me, use the doctors, or let me die, you are God and you reign. Because He knows what He's doing. We don't. Let Him be God. He is God whether you acknowledge Him or not. That's one of the things I love about Romans 10.9. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. God is God. The issue is whether you want to get on board with what He's doing. And so as we come to this time and we open this altar. Please, if you're struggling, if you're fighting... If the enemy's erected idols at every corner, if you think the circumstances are too big, if you think you can't handle it, come to this altar. It's a fight you're not meant to fight. Fall at the foot of God and say, whether the grapevines be empty, whether there be no grain in the field, whether the stalls have no calves, I will worship you. Father God, as we come to this time of invitation, 
Lord, I pray that your spirit would move. God, forgive me for how often I have allowed my heart to worship. other God I pray that you would make the prayer of the psalmist true in my own heart that like the deer pants after water I long for you that whether you bless me or take those blessings away that I would cry with Joe, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, when the bullies come and the enemy rails against me, that I would run to my daddy. Lord, these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.